0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycency.org.
1: Well, as the kids are making their way out this morning, I just want to give you a a really brief introduction to our uh, guest speaker this morning, Robert Cunningham. Robert was with us all weekend long for our fall conference. If you weren't able to be here for that, those talks are recorded and available on the website. I encourage you to... Uh, take a look at the, or take a listen uh, to those at some point, and they were really great. Uh, It was a great opportunity to get some really wonderful teaching, uh, both in understanding the big story of scripture, but also the world in which we live. Uh, Robert's here with us again this morning. Uh, He's the founder and director of Christ for Kentucky, former senior pastor of Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, where he served for 17 years. He's the graduate of Covenant Seminary, currently a PhD candidate at the University of Leicester and and, uh, the UK, He loves all things Kentucky uh, and even probably is through tears this morning after tough loss uh, last night. Uh, He's married to Abby, his four sons, Holt, Charlie, Owen, and Henry. He's been a leader in our denomination and Presbytery for quite some time, very involved in his work. He's a public theologian and a regular contributor to the uh, Lexington Herald-Leader, Kentucky Sports Radio. His writings have been featured, Christianity Today, World Magazine, New York Times. Let's give a warm welcome to Robert Cunningham.
0: It has been such a joy being with uh, your lovely community all weekend. It's uh, I do uh, I try to limit it a bit because I have a young family, but I do um, fairly regularly get to uh, visit other churches and uh, do the guest speaking thing, and I have gotten pretty good at identifying. Uh, churches and communities that are warm and welcoming and loving to each other. Uh, And this is a special place. I don't say that. I I know you think I have to say that. I don't have to say that. I would just go straight into my sermon if you all weren't a fun church. But you're a fun church, so uh, no, the the warmth and welcome of your community has been amazing. Um, I'm choosing John 8, 1 through 11 as, as kind of a concluding word to our conference. If you were not at our conference, no big deal. Um, In fact, um, it it might be best, if you were not at our conference, the first time I I delivered the material that I delivered this weekend with your church, I actually preached this uh, sermon or a version of this sermon before the conference, because I kind of wanted what I am about to say to you to kind of frame the entire discussion. So in some ways, if you didn't attend the the conference, um, getting this pastoral word first before you approach that material um, might be more helpful Anyway, so John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen, this is God's word. Are you all thanks be to God, church? Okay, the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Uh, it is good. I'm thankful for these people who, in many ways, when you consider what has become um, of our world and, I'm sure, of this city, in many ways, they, they rise to get themselves ready and drive or walk to church, um, somewhat of exiles of society. It's in our heart we want to love our neighbors, we want friendship with our neighbors, but But it's true, and and, and we understand that, that following Jesus Christ, naming you Lord, holding fast to the historic faith entrusted to us with all of its ethics, in many ways does bring about a form of marginalization. And so... um, we gather together as a community to be comforted by the presence of each other, but more so by the presence of you, by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't know the lives and the stories in this room, but the good news for every preacher is that you know them, you know every intimate detail, they sins, their shame, their victories and triumphs, their hardships, you know everything that is going on in this room, and you have them here for a reason. And so I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through the proclamation of your word, we would all be different because we came to church this morning. Bless me as I seek to be faithful to your scriptures. Forgive me where I fail. In all things, Jesus, you be glorified, and may the people of God be blessed. We pray in your name. Amen. So like I said, I want this to essentially serve as a fitting uh, concluding word to what has been a, a, an enjoyable um, and certainly uh, fun in, in, in many times, but, but certainly weighty. Uh, conference topic and discussion no way around that and so I wanted to offer a word from scripture that will be a fitting concluding not just to the conference but but is relatable to those who are unable to be with us for the conference I guess I should also say uh, if you're visitors among us this morning and uh, it's a little bit of an odd Sunday for you to uh, visit the church I am I'm a guest preacher if you don't like the sermon good news you can come back and you'll hear a better one uh, but you also are coming into what has been a weighty topic as Christians, just like I think everybody else in this world, all of our neighbors, are wrestling through what to do with um, human sexuality, uh, which is dominating uh, the narrative of our culture at this moment in so many different ways. And Christians are not the only ones wrestling with what do we believe? And how do we enact those beliefs? And that's been the spirit of the conference. And so not only do you get a guest preacher, you get a topic uh, that is a little bit uh, weighty, but hopefully I'll do it in such a way that even if you're visiting uh, with us, it will, it will be a blessing. So when my oldest son, um, who's now a teenager, he's, by the way, this is another quick caveat. Um, I, I ended up bringing my, uh, my oldest son, my teenage son, and three of his buddies with me this weekend just to have a kind of a discipleship weekend with them on the topic, but also just to have a lot of fun. I had mercy on them and did not make them come to both services, so they got to sleep in a little bit, and the only reason I'm telling you that is, uh, please don't, I, I have to slip out when I, after the service, I'll, I'll stay for a minute, but there's a point where I got to get out of here to go back to the hotel, grab them, and bring them back to the second service, uh, so don't, I hope you don't receive that as being, being rude or pretentious, that's not my aim, I just got to go get those knuckleheads and make them come to church. Um, so, when my oldest son, who's with me, was real little, he drew, a, uh, he drew a picture for me. He was so excited to give it to me, and I said, thanks, buddy, uh, I love it, and he asked the question that every parent fears in this moment, Daddy, can you tell what it is, right? And so I'm looking at it, and I couldn't tell much except that there was a boy uh, with curly, obviously curly hair, and a UK, University of Kentucky uh, shirt on. We're, like, like Josh says, we're big UK fans, and yes, last night was tough. Um, so my son has curly hair. He has, he's a big UK fan, so I said, oh, well, that's you. He said, no, Daddy, come on. I said, it looks just like you, Holt. He's like, Daddy, you can't tell who this is? Seems surprised. I said, but I don't know what to tell you, this looks just like you. And he said, oh, come on, Daddy, that's Jesus. <laughs> I said, Jesus? He said, You look, he's, he's walking on water. And granted, there was a blue line underneath the curly head of Kentucky Jesus. <laughs> I said, Hold. do you think Jesus looks like you? And he said, well, of course. If that's not a window into the human heart... I don't know what is. God made us in his own image, but since the fall, we have sought to remake God in our image. We craft a God who believes what we believe, loves what we love, hates what we hate, judges the way we judge, and so forth. And this, I believe, is what is playing out in the divide over human sexuality in our society in this moment. Both sides recreating a God that is conveniently on their side. And so I want to end the discussion we've been having by just allowing Jesus to end the conversation, by allowing Jesus to challenge our false conceptions of God that we have created around this issue. And in our passage, he's going to do that in two ways. Jesus is going to challenge self-righteous sexuality, and then, yes, he will challenge secular sexuality. So a challenge to both. Let's start with his fiercest challenge, which is a challenge towards self-righteous sexuality. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, um, if you are familiar with the New Testament, then you are conditioned to vilify the scribes and Pharisees. But if you were living in that context and consider yourself a uh, religious, social, conservative, then chances are you would have held them in high esteem. They were the gatekeepers of religious values and morality in their day, culturally speaking. But these religious conservatives hated Jesus more than anyone else. And what's so interesting about their hatred for him is that, technically speaking, the views of Jesus would qualify him as a religious conservative, Judea, where Jesus lived and did his ministry, was the outskirts of Rome's empire, and so it certainly had more traditional religious values and morality than the pagan centers of the empire, but it was still Roman occupation, and thus Judea was this hotly contested intermingling of traditional Jewish morality and Roman hedonism. Now, if you look at the life of Jesus and his teachings, he's clearly on the Jewish side of the ethical debates of his day. And yet, the scribes and Pharisees, the very gatekeepers of that Jewish morality, despised him. And even more interestingly, it was the quote-unquote immoral of society that loved Jesus the most. Now, just pause and consider how unique that is. In itself, there was something about the morality of Jesus that made him offensive to the quote moral of society and appealing to the quote immoral of society. Those you think should love him hated him. Those you think because of his views should hate him loved him. What a strange paradoxical morality that Jesus embodied. Why is that? How can we make sense of it? Well, what's going to transpire here is going to show us. And placing her in the midst, verse four, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? I don't have time to explain the controversy of Old Testament law and its capital punishment system. I'll let Josh clear all that up for you. Emails, Josh. Um, Only to say that it's being misused here in the passage is is the greater point. The scribes and the Pharisees do not care about the law they claim to hold in such high esteem. And we see this in a glaring omission. Only the woman was brought to Jesus. According to Israel's law, both the woman and the man stood condemned, which was actually a revolutionary concept to the patriarchal abuses of the time. But tellingly, the scribes and Pharisees only bring the woman to Jesus. They don't care about the law. They are using the law and this poor woman for something else. And the next verse, we know this explicitly because the next verse says it. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They think they've trapped him. You see, Jesus has garnered, garnered um, a reputation as a friend of sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, gluttons and drunkards, those in their day who were deemed the society's worst, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the moral downfall of culture. These folks he welcomed as friends, so much so that he was even falsely accused of their own sins, accused of being a drunkard himself. This is what the Pharisees could not understand or tolerate about Jesus. And so they bring this woman in adultery, caught in adultery, to Jesus as if to say, okay, here's one of your friends. Will it be the law or her? You can't claim to love the law of God and not condemn those the law condemns. Will you love the law or will you love this transgressor of the law? Well, Jesus gets out of their trap by showing them the true meaning of the law says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Some people like to speculate about what he was writing there on the ground, but we don't know, and it's not really the point. Those details there are meant to paint a picture of Jesus who is casually indifferent and unconcerned and unthreatened by what seems to the scribes and Pharisees as an impossible dilemma. It's not to Jesus, and just in his own body language, he's conveying that. But they keep pressing, and so he stands up and he says to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Perhaps the most famous mic drop of history, right? You've heard it quoted many times. As only Jesus can, with one sentence, he gets out of their trap and now has them trapped. And he traps them not by compromising the law, but by his commitment to the true meaning of the law. Jesus is saying, okay, would you like to talk about the law of God? Let's talk about the law. Where do you stand? Listen, I understand the laws of the Old Covenant are ubiquitous and severe. Those who have uh, read the first five books of the Old Testament or have tried to read the first five books of the Old Testament know it's an exhausting exercise to do so. So many rules about everything from diet to yes, sex, sex, but what if that exhaustion in reading the Mosaic law is the entire point of the law? Moses organized his nation among an otherwise lawless world. And then comes this, this new nation with expansive laws, as if to say to the lawless ancient world, God actually cares about and has rules for everything. And in this way, the entire corpus of Israel's law reveals just how holy Israel's God is. Good luck trying to keep up with his standard. It was exhausting. And the exhaustion was the entire point. It led all who tried to keep up with it to admit Paul's famous conclusion, there is none righteous, no, not one. When confronted with the holy standards of a holy God... Righteousness is now off the table. And this leaves us with two options. Just go ahead and confess unrighteousness or evade with self righteousness. Either we give up and just admit, yep, I'm a sinner, I got no hope, or we turn to self righteousness. Self righteousness is a form of law evasion. It seeks to justify oneself not by how we measure up to God, but by how we measure up to others. We can't keep up with the law of God. Can I keep up with you all? You're not morally competing against God's law in a competition you cannot win. You are now competing against the immorality of our neighbors in a competition you think you can win. Simply put, if the holiness of God is clearly off the table I will turn instead to holier than thou. Therefore, what self righteousness requires is an overemphasis on my immorality and an, an underemphasis on my immorality and an overemphasis on the immorality of others. Again, recreating God in our own image, thinking God is indifferent toward my sins but judges the sins of others. And that's what Jesus is confronting in our passage. He says to the self-righteous Pharisees, how about we look at you as well? I'm not gonna let you overemphasize her sin and de-emphasize your sin. So sure, the righteous among us are welcome to cast a stone, but the self-righteous are not allowed to. Okay, applying all of that to our societal debate over sexuality. I think it's safe to assume that Jesus would agree with a uh, biblical, historic, sexual ethic considering he wrote the ethic. And yet I firmly believe that his first and fiercest rebuke would not be toward our society's secular sexuality, but toward self-righteous sexuality. Again, self-righteousness is an evasion technique that requires an overemphasis on the immorality of others and a de-emphasis or even ignoring our own immorality. And this is where, candidly, we have failed this moment. Test your heart, brothers and sisters. Is your sexuality qualified to cast a stone at our culture's sexuality? It says this woman was caught in adultery. I wonder how you define Adultery. You're a Presbyterian church, so may I share with you how our confessional standards, the Westminster Confessions of Faith, define adultery? There's a uh, section of our catechisms that expands upon all, each of the Ten Commandments. I want to quote from that. Question, what is the Seventh Commandment? Answer, the Seventh Commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay? Question, what are the sins forbidden in the Seventh Commandment? answer. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, homosexuality, and all unnatural lust, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent behavior, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing of unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping, or resorting to brothels entangling vows, a single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste fellowship, explicit songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays. Those were controversial back then, I suppose. And just in case something wasn't covered, it ends with this. And all other provocations to or acts of uncleanliness in ourselves. How'd you do? According to the confessional standards... Of our church, every single person in this room is an adulterer. And if you say, well, that's just those crazy Westminster Puritans and all their puritanical morality. Okay, fine, we'll just let Jesus define it for us because his is far less complicated. Anyone that looks with lust at another has committed adultery. Look, this is not to minimize the devastation of adultery in the conventional sense. Some of you have suffered because of that. That's a part of my story. And either confessions recognize that some sins are more grievous in their consequences. The point I'm trying to make is the point Jesus is making in our passage. Is your sexuality qualified to cast a stone at those you may view as sexually immoral? Do you minimize, excuse, or even flat out ignore and hide your sexual immorality while fixating on the culture's sexual immorality? Do you view the lifestyles of our society as perverse while excusing the sexual perversions as in your life as normal struggles? Are you angry over certain uh, sexual ideological agendas in our world while obeying the agenda of your own illicit desires? Friends, if this is where you find yourself, then um, I can tell you the number one application of our entire conference this weekend and this sermon, repent and renounce your self-righteous sexuality. Perhaps your only application is verse 9. But when Jesus heard it, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was alone with the woman. Perhaps the only application is for you to walk away from this debate and leave the world alone and give singular focus to your own broken sexuality. Now, although Jesus' first and strongest challenge is directed towards self-righteous immorality, yes, he does here have a challenge for secular morality. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Such a beautiful exchange that we will uh, return to in a moment. But notice he doesn't end there. His final word to her is this, go and from now on sin no more. And therein lies his challenge to our secular society and its celebration of all forms of sexuality. We discussed this in detail during the conference, but what has transpired in our culture is a convergence of many things, leading in essence to one thing, the preeminence of self. Self Self-identity, self-determination, self-expression, as Carl Truman puts it, the rise and triumph of the modern self. And for a variety of reasons that we discussed, this concept of self has been inextricably united to sexuality in particular my sexuality, my sexual orientation, expressions, fulfillments, whatever. My sexuality is no longer a part of me. It is me. Thus, the term sexual identity. And this is why mere tolerance on this singular issue, merely agreeing to disagree with our neighbors in civility, that is not enough for our secular society. What is demanded is more than respect, kindness, and love, and so forth. What is demanded now, of course, is affirmation. We are being told that we have to affirm any and all sexual expressions and lifestyles. Why? Because my sexuality is now me. And therefore, to not affirm my sexuality is to not, is to not affirm me as a person. So this then becomes the one area in our society where disagreement is off the table. And so nothing is more offensive to our secular world than a Jesus who has the audacity to disagree with our sexuality. Jesus is offensive to every culture in unique ways. He has always been that way. For our culture, in our day, a Jesus who has the audacity to disagree with our sexuality, our sexual expressions, has risen to become the highest offense and greatest stumbling block to the Christian faith. And I understand that many churches in um, good-hearted intentions have chosen to remove that stumbling block and craft a Jesus again in the image of our culture to make him more palatable to this cultural moment. But I just don't want to insult anyone's intelligence and, more importantly, insult the Jesus I call Lord by recreating him conveniently into an image that meets the demands of our sexual revolution. It is what it is. He is who he is. As his follower, he gets to disagree with me and tell me what to do in every area of my life, including my sexuality. And yes, if you want to follow him, then it is a choice to likewise let him disagree with you and tell you what to do. He gets to say to you what he says to this woman in response to her sexual sins. Go. And sin no more. If my non-Christian friends just can't accept Jesus on those terms, I, I understand. I mean, Jesus himself has, ha, will, will tell you it is a cross to follow Jesus. And perhaps nowhere will you feel that death more than in the area of your sexuality. But what if there is resurrection waiting for you on the other side of that death? What if life is found not on your terms, but on his? If you will not accept a God who disagrees with you, then you are essentially doing what my son did in that drawing. You are saying the only God I will accept is a God who looks like me. Well, I'm wondering if you have the humility to assess your life with you as your own God. And specifically, in light of this text and the theme of our weekend, how is life with you in charge of your sexuality? How is life with you doing what you want to do, indulging what you want to indulge? If you are like most, then I am betting your greatest regrets, your deepest shames, your most painful wounds, most intense sadness probably stems from something sexual. As we discussed this weekend, nothing is more powerful than erotic love, and that's why erotic love hurts us the most. You in charge of your own erotic desires is a treacherous journey. And every time we are wounded by the erotic, it is because we have done, or often someone has done to us, something Jesus disagrees with. What if you need to be told what to do? What if the supposed sexual liberation has proven to be a cruel oppressor? What if the author of our sexuality needs to tell us what to do with our sexuality? What if Jesus is willing to disagree with you because he loves you? Jesus is so affirming of you, friends but he doesn't define you by your sexuality. He defines you as the image of God, and Jesus is profoundly image of God affirming. He doesn't define you by your shame, your regrets, your trauma, your perversions. He sees you, and he loves what he sees, and he wants to forgive, love, cleanse, heal, protect, and bless you forevermore will you bow the knee to him and let him? I promise he will not treat you like many of his self-righteous followers have. You already saw what he does to us. (laughs) Now I want you to behold what he does with the unrighteous. I want us all to picture ourselves in this scene. You've been caught and if you, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, and this, this might be a, a difficult exercise for some of you, depending upon your story, bring to mind your sexual shame, that which you keep hidden from everyone, perhaps that which you intend to take to your grave. Imagine it is exposed for all to see, and you are on the ground, cowering and trembling over that exposure. And you're surrounded by a crowd of condemnation standing over you with stones in their hand, ready to just heap them upon you in your shame. By the way, you're probably in that crowd too, right? I know nobody condemns me more than me. But thankfully, someone else is in that crowd. His name is Jesus. And on your behalf, Jesus says, unless there is anyone here, who is without sin, leave my friend alone. And one by one, your condemnation walks away from you. And now it's just you and Jesus. And he bends down and he looks into your eyes of regret and shame, and he says, is there anyone left? Is anyone here to condemn you? And you say through tears, no one. That's actually not true though because Jesus is still there. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. The only one qualified to cast a stone is the only one left. But he doesn't pick up a stone. He looks intently into your eyes of regret and he says, neither do I condemn you. I'm not picking up a stone. Here's the reality. He can't say that. The Pharisees, though full of self-righteous hypocrisies, were right. Jesus, you can't love the law and not condemn those the law condemns. As much as you may want to say, neither do I condemn you, you can't say that. Well, he can if he's willing to die the death that she deserves. And I deserve. And you deserve And bless his name, he is willing. When Jesus offers the word, neither do I condemn you, he seals his own condemnation. And so instead of picking up a stone, he picks up a cross. My son drew a picture of Jesus who looks like him, and we laughed, but it's not entirely untrue. What God saw in Jesus hanging from the cross was me. The worst parts of me. The stuff I hide from you. And the worst parts of you, the stuff you hide, all our sins, all our shame, all our regrets, all our perversions, all that you hide was exposed on the cross. And all the condemnation it deserves, Jesus received. All so that he can look you in the eyes and say to you this morning, in this moment, and may you hear him say it as a minister in his name. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't pick up a stone, you picked up a cross. Forgive us, Jesus, for any ways that we have failed this moment. And instead of obsessing over others, including our world, may we leave here recommitted beneath your grace, beneath the tenderness and assurance of your love and forgiveness, Beneath the good news and hope of our healing in every area, including this most intimate area, may we all leave here with a singular focus, recommitment to you as Lord, to obey you where you are disagreeing with us in our lives. Instead of running from that challenge, may we submit to you as Lord and find the blessed life that is promised to us with you in charge. Jesus, thank you as we are about to celebrate at your table. Thank you for your condemnation so that you can tell us all this morning, neither do you condemn us. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.